Well, let's turn to Genesis. And it's been a couple weeks, but this morning we're going to return to the book of Genesis. And because it's been a few weeks, I thought we'd start by just recapping what has Moses taught us so far? What have we seen so far in the book of Genesis? And so here's a, just a little picture. I like to draw arcs. I find that helpful. So Moses starts off in Genesis 1 and 2 and describes for us how God creates the heavens and the earth and Adam and Eve. And Moses does that in order to hold before our very eyes who God is. That God is infinitely powerful, flawlessly wise in the way he's created, and perfectly good. And so he creates the heavens and the earth, he creates Adam and Eve, and he says to Adam and Eve, you can enjoy paradise forever if you will just do one thing. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means don't think you can decide for yourself what's good and evil. Trust me, God, your creator. Trust me to know what for you would be good and evil. So that's chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 3, you know the story. Tragically, Adam and Eve did exactly what God called them not to do. They became proud. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to decide for themselves what was good and evil. And so they sinned against God, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, God brought his curse upon the world and upon Adam and Eve tragic development in chapter 3. But in chapter 3, verse 15, God gives a promise. This is the first appearance of the gospel in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And God promises that a descendant of Eve, this is a prophecy about Jesus, a descendant of Eve is going to crush Satan's head, destroy the power of sin, and because of that, God promises he's going to save a vast number of people from sin and from Satan. So, yes, there's the fall in chapter 3, but sin is not going to win. God's going to win. In fact, God has, has purposefully allowed this all along to display his glory even more fully. And so he gives this promise in chapter 3, verse 15. Then, sadly, in chapter 4 through chapter 6, about verse 7, we see sin just spreading, spreading through the world. Cain kills Abel. Lamech takes two wives. Godly men pursue and marry ungodly, godless, wicked women. And by the time we get to chapter 6, verse 5, we read, God says, or Moses says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Chapter 6, verse 5, everyone was sinning continuously. But God hadn't forgotten his promise. The promise back in chapter 3, verse 15. And so because of what Jesus would do on the cross thousands of years in the future, God brought his power upon sinful Noah and changed his heart. And Noah woke up to his sin repented of his sin, confessed his sin before God, and because of Jesus' death, was completely forgiven for his sin and started walking with God in holiness and in righteousness and in love and in joy. But everybody else in the world was sinning. And so as a result, in Genesis 6, verse 8, through chapter 9, verse 17, God judges the world by bringing a global flood upon the world, and everyone 
is destroyed. Except for Noah and his family, because God told them to build an ark. Right, the story of Noah and his ark. Now you might think, okay, so the flood, that's going to solve the sin problem, right? Everything's going to be good from here on in. Sadly, no, the flood did not solve the sin problem, because after the flood, Noah sins, and then Noah's son Ham sins. And so it looks like, oh no, sin is still here. But to help us understand that sin has not won and will not win, God gives Noah three prophecies, one for each of his sons. The prophecy he gives to Ham shows that God is going to judge sin. Sin will not grow forever. God's going to judge sin. The prophecy that he gives concerning Shem shows that God's promise of a Savior is still in place and will be fulfilled. And then the prophecy concerning Japheth shows that God is going to save a vast number of people from sin, bring them into salvation knowing him. Then after giving these prophecies, Noah dies. And that brings us to the end of chapter 9. That's what we've covered so far. So now, what happens in chapter 10? Look at verse 1. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then in the following verses, what we see is the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and how they all multiply and become different people groups, and, and where they all end up living. So let's, let's use this map to show us this. So I'm not sure how well you can see that, but take my word for it, okay? So verses 2 through 5 show the descendants of Japheth. So if, if, if Mount Ararat, uh, there we go, if Mount Ararat's in here somewhere, the descendants of Japheth kind of spread this way, like towards Italy and Spain, and then this way over here. This is Asia Minor, Northern Europe area. That's where Japheth's sons spread. That's verses 2 through 5. Verses 6 through 20, the descendants of Ham, and they spread down. They're the green ones, down here into the kind of Palestine area and North Africa, spread down. Some are actually down into the Arabian Peninsula where we are. Okay, so that's verses 6 through 20. Verses 21 through 31, the descendants of Shem, and they spread out this way, over into Mesopotamia and then down some into the, the, the Arabian Peninsula as well. And then verse 32, here's a summary of the chapter. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, I have to make a comment about that word nations in verse 32, because in the Bible, the word nations does not mean the same thing it does in English mostly today. Most people today, you hear the word nation, you think a, a geopolitical region in the world, like India would be a nation, the way we use the word today. That's not how the Bible uses the word nation. In the Bible, the word nation doesn't refer to a geopolitical region, it refers to a group of people, a, a distinct ethnic and linguistic group of people. So India would have thousands of nations living within it because there's lots of people groups with different languages in India. And that's how it's being used here in this passage. So Moses emphasizes that from Noah, remember, everybody else had been killed by the flood, except for Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. So from Noah, we have dozens and dozens and dozens of distinct nations, distinct people groups. And notice how in chapter 10, he emphasizes each has their own 
language. Verse 5, each with his own language. Verse 20, their languages. Verse 31, their languages. So do you see what this means? This means that all the different races, all the different ethnic groups, all the different cultures, all the different languages, all originated from Noah. And of course, before Noah, Adam, right? That's what, what Moses wants to emphasize here. So I try to think of some specific examples just to see if you can feel how this, this, this might be a big shift for some of you to think about. But so, for example, the Punjabis in Pakistan came from Noah and his sons, okay? The Inuit Eskimos from northern Canada, they came from Noah and his sons, okay? All right, well, what about the Reef Berbers in North Africa? Noah and his sons, all right, you getting this? How about the, the house of sub-Sahara Africa? Where did they come from? Noah and his sons. Are you getting this? We're, okay, how about the Japanese? Where'd they come from? Noah and his Amy's got this, okay. Noah and his sons. The Egyptian Arabs, Noah and his sons. Okay, Irish, <laughs> Noah and his sons. Okay, are you getting this? Every race, every ethnicity, every language, every people group on the earth came from Noah and his sons. Now, I want to stress this because this is going to help us battle a sin that we all deal with, and that's the sin of racism. We all deal with this at different levels. What is racism? I got a lot, a lot of help in answering this from reading a book I'd recommend, John Piper's book called Bloodlines. Race, cross, and the Christian. And here's kind of a summary of a number of different things he says. But, but essentially, racism is believing that, that one or some races are more valuable than others, and other race or races are less valuable than others. That's what, that's what racism means. Some races are more valuable than other races. Others are less valuable. That's racism. This is not the case. Now, let me emphasize, that does not mean that everything that every race does is fine. It's not what we're saying. To say that a race has done something that is sinful is not racism. To say that they as a race are inferior, that's racism. But to say that there's a race that has done something wrong, that's not racism. For example, the Aztec Indians in South America, they committed human sacrifice. It's not racism to say, with tears in our eyes, that's wrong. But it would be wrong if we said the Aztecs are an inferior race. Very important difference there. So avoiding racism does not mean we must say that everything every race does is fine. Does that make sense? Another example, it, it would not be racism to say that the white Americans were wrong to make holding black Africans as slaves legal. That was wrong. White Americans were absolutely wrong to do that. But that's not a racist statement. It's just a simply statement that this race of people committed wrong. See the difference there? So what is racism then? Well, it's racist when we think that 
our race is more valuable than another race. And in our pride, we all can have a tendency to do that. It's racist to look down on someone simply because of their race. That's wrong. It's racist to discriminate against someone because of their race. To speak insultingly of other races. To withhold love from those of other races. So see, that's, that's racism. And Genesis 10 destroys racism. Because it teaches that we all have Noah as our father. But think about how easy it is to, I mean, just to, 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 to have racism come into our hearts. Let, let's say that, that you're at home group one night and a visitor knocks on the door and comes in. Would you feel differently about that person depending on what race they were? Or let's say you're here on a Friday morning and you're sitting here in the service, and, and somebody walks down the front aisle and comes in and sits next to you, would you feel differently about that person depending on what race they were? Now, see, it, it's so important that we destroy racism because Jesus Christ is most glorified when the church is who he's called the church to be, and one of the things he's called the church to be is a is a multiracial entity. In, in Revelation 7, we see the, the crowd standing before the throne of believers, and that crowd is men and women from every nation and tribe and tongue. And one of the reasons that that is so glorifying to Christ is the only way that races can be united together with all the pain and all the heartbreak and all the injustice and all the horrible things that races have done to each other. But the only way that... The races can be brought together in unity is because they've been saved through Jesus Christ's blood, because they've repented of their sins, because the Holy Spirit has changed their hearts, and they love each other now, and racism has been banished from them. And so we at Grace Church, we're called to be a church where there is no racism. We're called to be a church where we love each other as brothers. So let me give you an example. Say, you and a Bengali from Bangladesh have the same father, Noah, which means you're either their brother or their sister. Do you see that? You and a black Nigerian have the same father. You're their brother or their sister, same father. You and a white American have the same father, brother, sister. You and a Filipino have the same father, okay? Noah, so brother, sister. You and an Emirati have the same father, Noah, ultimately Adam. So you're their brother, their sister. Now, how do we live that out? Because, again, there's... There's, a, there's all kinds of things in our hearts sewn in from past events, injustice we've experienced, things our parents have sewn into us, our culture, whatever. Injustice is just so rampant. But here's the good news. Through Jesus Christ, racism can be overcome. And only through Jesus Christ can racism be overcome. Because when we come and confess our sin, the sin of, and it's really a, a prideful sin, 
when we confess that before the Lord Jesus and say, please forgive me, you will be assured that because of the cross, you are completely forgiven. And then as you ask for his help to come and change your heart, his power by the Holy Spirit will go to work. You may need to forgive a race that you've experienced injustice from. Jesus calls us to love our enemies, right? And if your enemy has in the past been a race that has oppressed you, then Jesus would call you to love them. Isn't that true? And so we're called to love our enemies, to forgive those who hurt us. And so if you have been harmed and oppressed by another race, you are called to love them and to forgive them. Now, this might feel like a tall order. I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have been horribly harmed by people of other races. And I don't want to make light of this at all, but listen. Jesus Christ can so fill you and so strengthen you and so comfort and assure you that you are able to forgive the worst injustices and the worst abuses and not hold that against them. What it was was wrong. They did wrong. No one's denying that, but we can forgive. And that will help us overcome racism. And then just as we're humbled before the Lord, as we see that we are all equal at the foot of the cross, every race will be able to love each other and care for each other. Grace Church, we are called to be a church that displays to the world the glory of Christ. And one of the most powerful ways we can do that here is by being a multicultural, multi-ethnic group where we love each other equally in spite of the different races. And that's one of the reasons I'm excited to have us move over to Musafa because that is going to display for, for you know, there's different classes here in the, in the UAE. There's wealthy people who have very, very high-paying jobs. And for, especially for, for some people like that to go over and we love people of all races to have a church here that's going to be a powerful display of the glory of Jesus Christ. God's going to work with power. But we, Grace Church, are called to be a multi-ethnic, non-racist community, which is going to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Because remember, all the different races came from Noah and ultimately from Adam. So let's battle racism when we feel it rising up in our hearts when we see it lingering. Let's battle it. So that's chapter 10. Now, chapter 11. When we start reading chapter 11, we immediately see something puzzling. Verse 1 should make us scratch our heads if we're reading carefully. Moses writes, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Why is that so puzzling? Well, in the previous chapter, there were many different languages, right? Remember that? Three different places. Each of these from Shem, from Ham, from Javeth, all kinds of different languages. Now in chapter 11, they've all got one language. Same words. What's going on? Well, what's happening is that chapter 11 actually took place before the events of chapter 10. You know how in movies today or some TV shows, you have flashbacks, right? Something's going on, all of a sudden three years earlier, and then something else starts. It kind of helps you get some perspective on what's going on. That's what's taking place here. And so Moses gives us chapter 11 as a flashback to show how did everyone end up with different languages? 
Start by reading verse 2 of chapter 11. Here's how everyone ended up with different languages. Verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So this is Shem's, Japheth's, Ham's children migrating to the east. They found this plain, settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Bake them, you know, make, make bricks. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now underline that phrase, let us make a name for themselves. That's the problem here. They wanted their name to be exalted and praised. They wanted themselves to get the praise and the glory for what was happening. That's pride, and that's the issue here. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We don't want to be dispersed, then our name wouldn't be as great. We're going to unite here, build this tower. It's going to make us look great. Let's do this thing. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And Notice that phrase, come down. I think Moses is, is, is being a little bit funny here, maybe more than a little bit funny. I mean, in other words, God, I know they're thinking they're building a really high tower. God has to come down in order to see this tower that they're building. Verse 6, and the Lord said, behold, they're one people. They've all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. In other words, they think that nothing they'll do will be impossible for them. And then verses 7 through 9, God says, Come now, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Can I imagine? Some of you have been involved in building. Imagine that you're in, in this construction project, okay, a complicated construction project, and you are all there working together. You're all speaking the same language, and all of a sudden, in an instant, everybody's speaking different languages. There's Tagalog going on, okay, there's Spanish going on. There's Hindi being spoken, there's Afrikaans, there's Igbo, there's German, there's Italian, all these different languages. Now, imagine the instant confusion. I mean, it's hard enough to do a building project when you're all speaking the same language, right? So imagine the difficulty if you're all speaking different languages. That's exactly what happens here. And God gives them all different languages so they won't be able to understand each other, so they won't be able to sin as much as they wanted to. It's not that God's threatened by them becoming so powerful and sinful. God is not threatened by human beings. He could just stomp them out if he chose to. But in his mercy and his love, he does not. And in his mercy and his love, he confuses their languages so they can't become as sinful as they otherwise would have become. Now, their sin is pride. That's the sin that's going on here. And so I want us just to linger on, on pride for the rest of our time this morning and, and understand pride and see how prevalent it is and then see how powerfully God can set us free from pride. So look at verse 4 again. They said, come, 
Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Okay, they wanted to make a name for themselves. They built this tower. Built this tower up to the heavens, they thought. Okay, so, so just imagine God. He's in heaven. And, um, and, and they're thinking, it's like all of a sudden God's in heaven. It's like, whoa, what's this tower being built here? Wow, it's, it's like, it's goodness, what's going on down there? That's not what happened. Maybe an angel Gabriel came and said, God, you already know this, of course, but they're building a tower down there that they think is pretty impressive. Would you go and see it? All the way down there? Yes. Would you go and see it? God says, okay. You know. So God starts heading down. Okay, and so, so God's heading down, and, and he comes to this little teeny tiny Milky Way. Okay? And there's this little tiny, and, and okay, got even t- little teeny, teeny, tiny solar system. Okay, and then t- t- little teeny, tiny Earth. And oh, there's, oh, I can almost see that little, how cute. What a cute little tower, you know? Okay, so, so that, that's what, I mean, God has to come down to see this thing. It's, it, it's absolutely nothing. Okay, but not only that, not only was it nothing in comparison to God, the other point is that everything that human beings had and were and were able to do, everything was a gift to them from God. I mean, think about it. Why are they alive? Because of God, right? If God hadn't created them, would they be there building a tower? No. They owe their lives to God. Where'd they get the bodies that they had that could build a tower? Where'd they get those bodies? From God, okay? How about the brains to plant a tower? Now, that, that's pretty impressive. Where'd they get those brains to, to plant a tower? You got it, okay. Okay, how about the materials to build the tower? Where'd they get that? Absolutely. Okay, how about... And so, but what did they come up with themselves? I mean, how about... Did they come up with anything themselves? No, because even their choices to build and their discipline and hard work to build, even all of those were given to them from God. It all came from God. So not only was it just this little, cute, little, teeny, tiny tower, but even the capacity to build that tower was all given to them from God. And so if everything was given to them from God, whose name should be praised for the tower they built? God's name. God's name. Jot this reference down. It'd be a good verse to memorize. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul says this, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. Then he says, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Do you see the power of that? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So see, the Bible teaches that everything that we have and everything that we are comes from God. The only things we can take credit for are sin. And the only reason we can be forgiven for our sin and reconciled to God isn't because of anything we've done. That's also a gift from God at great cost to himself through Jesus Christ. So anything good in us is in us only because of God. And so our lives should bring glory to whom? God. Do you see that? Okay, imagine. Try to think of an illustration. Imagine... Do you know about soapbox derby cars? Is it just a U.S. thing? Okay, so in the U.S., 
Fathers will oftentimes build their sons these soapbox derby cars. They're about this long, and there's no engines to them. They're just made out of wood. And then they, they will like have races where they all, it's just all gravity, okay, goes down. And so you build these soapbox derby cars. So now imagine that a father is going to build a soapbox derby car for his son. And so he wants to draw out the plans. Now, he, he may put his son's hands around the pencil and then his hand around the son's hands to, to make it look like he's helping him to plan, okay? So he's, he's drawing this fantastic plan for a soapbox derby car. And then the father takes the son with him to go and buy the materials for the car. And so father drives, spends his own money, buys these materials, brings them back to the house. And then the father builds the soapbox derby car, but he, he helps the son. I mean, the son has a hand in it, so he, the father might take the son's hand and put it on the saw and then put his, the father's hand over the son's hand on the saw and, and kind of sawing together, okay? And then take the son's hand and put it on the, on the hammer and then put the father's hand around the hammer and, and drive those nails in. And, and so building. So the son's right there actively involved, but, but the father's doing the building. And then the soapbox derby car is, is finished, now think of how proud the father would be to hear his son say to a friend, look at what my dad built for me. Isn't my dad great? It'd be totally right to say that, right? But think of how evil it would be if the son said to his friend, look at what I built. You can't do anything that, like that. I am much better than you are. Can you feel the, the wickedness of that pride, the evil of that pride? And pride is something that we all struggle with. We've all, we haven't said those exact same words that the son said to his friend, prideful words, but we've all had pride in our hearts, even this past week. So I tried to think of six questions that we could ask that would help us discern pride. See if these make sense to you. One question, do I find more pleasure in people noticing me than in people worshiping God, noticing God, glorifying God? Or do I find more pleasure? Second question, in conversations with other people, do I talk about what points to me, what exalts me, uh, and not about what strengthens others in God, points others to the glory of God, the goodness of God? Do I take pleasure in thinking I'm superior to others? I'm better than this person in that. I'm better than that person in that area. Do we find pleasure in that? Do I feel bad when others aren't noticing me or making much of me or exalting me in some way? Do I feel bad when others are noticed more than me? Do I feel bad about sin just because it dishonors me more so than because it's dishonored God? Those are some questions that, that I've, I found helpful in looking at my own heart. And I hope you see from this, you know, we all struggle with pride. I do. We all do. And it's so prevalent. I mean, it's so subtle. Even if you start saying, I'm going to really be humble, and you think, okay, I, I was humble in that conversation. I was humble in that conversation. You can be proud about how humble you think you are, right? It's so subtle and so prevalent. But it's so crucial that we overcome it. 1 Peter 5, 5, Peter says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. 
And we talked earlier about racism, and see, racism is just a form of pride, right? You're taking pride in your race, thinking that you're superior to others because of the race that you're a part of. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, now here's the good news. Pride can be overcome by the power of Jesus Christ. I don't think any of us will be completely free from pride until heaven. And glory to God, when we enter heaven at that moment, we will be instantly freed from all remaining sin. It's going to be a glorious day. But in this life, we can make progress against pride. So, so pride is it's lower and lower and lower and lower and lower all through our lives. That's, that's what we want to see, this, this growing humility and this lessening of pride. That's what God wants for us, and that's what he will give us through Jesus Christ. So how can we overcome pride? I, I jotted down five steps, and I think, I mean, I found them helpful for me, and I... I commend them to you as being helpful for you as well. So first, confess our pride to God as sin and trust Jesus' death to pay for that sin. So take some time, maybe just this afternoon or whenever, or whenever you see pride rising up in your heart and kneel down and be by your bed or wherever. Just, so it's, it's between you and God. And you just, you confess this, Father, forgive me. Look at my pride. I'm so sorry. It's wrong. Cleanse me. And when you do that from the heart, you will be assured that you are completely forgiven, not because of how good you are or because of how sincerely you've confessed, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of what Jesus did on the cross. So confess your pride and trust Jesus' death to pay for that sin. And then secondly, ask God to change our hearts by his power. Ask him to do that. Say, God, I cannot overcome pride myself. I don't have the power to do it, but you do. So please, change my heart. Crush my pride. Thank you that my pride was put to death through Jesus' death on the cross. My pride was killed on the cross 2,000 years ago. Apply that to me now in greater and greater measure so that my pride will shrink and my humility will grow. Third, pray over scriptures showing that everything you have is a gift from God. I thought this morning of the verse, remember 1 Corinthians 15, 10, where Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Remember that verse? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. In other words, anything I am that's good, it's by the grace of God alone. So memorize 1 Corinthians 15, 10, and just ponder that. And then 1 Corinthians 4, 7, which I mentioned earlier. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? God, thank you. You've given me such gifts at great cost to yourself through the cross. Oh, I want to be humbled before you for them, and I want you to get all the glory for them. So pray over scriptures showing that everything you have is a gift from God. And then, number four, pray over scriptures showing your sinfulness. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I once heard uh, someone say that we should give maybe one look at our sin compared to maybe 10 looks to Jesus Christ for who he is, okay? 
be careful about doing 10 looks at your sin and just one look at Christ. We need more looks at Christ because we can get too depressed and discouraged about our sin. You understand that? So look at your sin straight on face to face, but then, oh, feast on the cross. Look at God's mercy through the gospel. Let that encourage and strengthen and ensure and inspire you. But do pray over scriptures showing your sinfulness because it'll, it'll humble you. All I deserve is hell, Father. That's all I deserve. And you've forgiven me through the cross. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's look at the cross again. Let's look at heaven some more. Let's look at your forgiveness and mercy some more. Thank you. And fifth, pray over scriptures showing God's glory and majesty and love and goodness in Christ. All that he's done for us undeserving, unworthy people in Christ, how he's lavished his love upon us. He's poured out his grace upon us. He's given us such amazing promises in the scripture. He's promised that for the rest of our lives, he is rejoicing over us to do us good with all his heart and all of his soul. And it's completely in spite of what we are for his glory. So pray over scriptures showing God's glory and majesty and love and goodness in Christ. Okay, now Grace Church, God has already been pouring out upon us humility. He's already been conquering pride. I think there's a beautiful lack of racism here. I love what God's doing. But Grace Church, let's, let's press in for more. Let's press in for more. Let's ask God, cleanse us of any racism that we have. Wash us clean from any pride that we have. Because church, as we do that, Jesus Christ will be more glorified. As he sees us humbly loving each other, humbly serving each other, humbly caring for each other, as he sees us longing to see God making a name for himself, not us making a name for ourselves, as people see us glorifying and honoring Christ in that humble, selfless way, he will be praised and glorified, and we will be filled and satisfied. So Grace Church, let's press in to humility. Let's fight the pride of racism and any other pride that we might deal with for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray about this. Father, once again, thank you for your word the power of your word, Lord. And I pray that you would use this passage in Genesis to reveal what's going on in our hearts. Lord, we want to be growing in holiness and godliness. We want Christ to be glorified from our lives. Father, we want to be free from racism of any sort. We want to be free from pride of any sort. And so, Lord, work in our hearts, I pray, through your word, Work in our hearts as we take time to pray about these things this afternoon, this evening, this coming week. Would you increase the sanctifying work of your spirit upon us for our joy and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.